tonight. I'm going to try to keep these to an hour, uh, no more than that. I seven seven days in a row uh, is enough, and uh, we get tired, and people are working and various things. So I, I think it is good that we meet on each day of unleavened bread. Maybe not in the same way we did in the 50s in Big Sandy where it would be cold and rainy and people are sitting there through a four-hour sermon every, every night. Uh, that gets wearisome to the body and mind. So we'll try to keep these fairly short and uh, try to cover some ground. Tonight I, I want to continue a little further in Isaiah from where we left off yesterday. I do have another uh, angle that I want to get to. But I thought tonight, uh, 56 and 57, if we get that far, uh, are an augmentation of what we just read. They're a continuation, but it gives us some instruction, and I think that the instruction is very uh, timely for Days of Unleavened Bread. As I said yesterday, uh, God set, as I understand it now, the Passover season up is a feast of seven days, the first of which he totally dominates from sundown on the 13th until sundown the 14th with uh, the Passover and his everything he went through and his death and burial. Uh, so it was all about him that first day. And of course, he, he plays the major part in our salvation. So God did set it aside as a feast, uh, as it says, uh, because it is probably the most important day of the year. I mean, yeah, if you start comparing the importance of each day, well, Feast of Trumpets is pretty important too. It's the day you rise and, or made immortal, and, and without that, all this wouldn't matter. So I don't know that you can really put one above the other, but in terms of the beginnings of the plan of salvation... Uh, the Passover service kicks it off at the very beginning because if you didn't have the Passover and Christ's sacrifice, uh, nothing else would matter. So uh, he completely dominated the first day. And the remaining six, six being the number of man, is the day for man, us, to continue to put sin out of our lives. So salvation is a it's a teamwork thing. He does most of it. Without him, it would not be possible no matter what we did. And all our good works could not save us because what any one sin we may have committed would bring the death penalty. So he forgives the sin. He's the one who is the captain of our salvation, as Hebrews says, and our high priest and mediator with the Father. And on and on it goes. So that day is of paramount importance. And then we, according to New Testament uh, test testimony, are to produce good works and show our faith by our works. We cannot earn salvation, but we can do good works uh, which show our love toward God and toward man and put Him favorably in mind to give us salvation. It is a gift, but He doesn't give that free gift to just everyone. And he makes it very clear throughout Scripture that it is to those who keep the commandments. If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Uh, that is about as succinct and definitive uh, a statement as is, is in the Bible. 
that commandment keeping is necessary to enter into life. So we must have those good works uh, of all kinds. And that makes it possible and puts him in a mood to say, yes, I want that one. They want to live my way. They want to help others. Uh, they're the kind of people I'd like to live with forever. Uh, you know, that's when grace is extended. Pardon that we don't really deserve. Good favor. Uh, there, there are many different ways we might define grace. Uh, I don't think any one definition in, entirely encompasses it. But uh, that's what these days are about. Us, you know, he forgives our sins. He makes us clean, uh, Passover. But then he, he knows that being human, uh, we're still a long way from what we need to be. So the symbolism in there is, as Paul put it, to continue with the unleavened bread. Let's, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6 uh, while this is right here in front of us and see what he said. Now, this, this situation was of a serious problem uh, in the church that he was dealing with. 1 Corinthians 5 is what I want. Uh, but he just fellowshiped this fellow for some uh, sexual activity, which was not proper. And, he, and they, they were uh, whispering about it and accepting it and thought it was kind of cool. This guy was getting away with it, I guess, uh, because they were a very immoral society in Corinth. And uh, this, this kind of co uh, cap activity had been acceptable to the Corinthians. So coming into the church, they hadn't had a complete transformation of their uh, viewpoint and their way of doing things. So uh, they didn't think anything of it much, apparently. But in verse 6, he says, Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You can just put bread, you can put yeast or uh, a leavening agent just in the corner of some dough. And by the time it's cooked, it'll go through the whole thing and the whole thing will get puffed up. So we can't tolerate sin, period. So if it's in one corner of the congregation, it'll spread to the rest. To use a different analogy, one apple spoils the whole barrel. Uh, there are a lot of different analogies we could use here, but God uses leaven during this period of time, not bad apples. So he says, purge out, therefore, the old leaven. So he's, re he's referring to this person who was committing these sins as being leavened or like leaven in bread that would go through the whole loaf, the whole congregation, the whole body, and, uh, and puff it up in vanity, ego, pride, and sin. So he said, put out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. So he said, put this out so that it doesn't infect or affect the entire congregation. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So, our vanity, our ego, our pride, all those things that make us ungodly, were loaded on His head and sacrificed so that the sin be removed from us, that the, the air, the puffy, puffiness be taken out of the body. So he says, therefore, let us keep the feast. And I think that this was probably written about Passover time uh, for him to use this particular analogy uh, in terms of their conduct. 
Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, not our old way of thinking and doing, as the Corinthians were doing here, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, uh, those works of the flesh, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, this has to be a sincere effort to put sin, faults, weaknesses out during this period of time. Just because we got to people look to Passover, you know. Well, I got to get, I got to have the Passover. Got to have the Passover. Well, yes, uh, that is the most important part. But how many say, well, I just got to make it to unleavened bread and get rid of all this sin? I don't hear people talking that way. They talk about their cupboards that way, but not maybe themselves so much. So it's, I need the Passover to forgive my sins. Well, let's not forget the second part. Let's sincerely make the effort to make some changes during this time. That's what he's saying. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, what does he mean by truth here? We have the truth. We have God's knowledge of the Sabbath and the holy days and the immortality of the soul and this and that and the other thing. Is that the truth he's talking about? No. He's talking here about being truthful with ourselves, not deceiving ourselves, not kidding ourselves that we are without sin, but being ready to recognize malice, wickedness, uh, judgment of each other, So, let's be sincere and let's be truthful. Now, that's why he tells us before the Passover, examine yourself carefully and take the Passover in humility and meekness, realizing you need your sins forgiven. So, we have the examination before, the forgiveness offered at, and the continuation of putting sin out after the Passover. So it's a a three-step process. You cannot overcome that which you do not recognize. And if you come to the Passover not having examined yourself and seen where your weaknesses and and lacks are, then you're taking it flippantly, uh, lightly, and not in the right manner or attitude. So take it seriously and understanding what weaknesses you have. They don't simply go away because... You have the bread and the wine and formally lay your sins upon Christ. Uh, What caused you to sin and need the Passover is probably still part of you. And it will lead you to sin the next year also. Have you noticed that? Has anybody yet examined himself, taken the Passover, and then not sinned again until the next Passover? I'd like to meet that animal. Uh, No. Somebody said the other day, I sinned on the way out. (laughs) You know, I I don't know what they meant by that, but it's so easy for vanity or pride or selfishness. uh, They just, but there they are. So he says, keep it, the undays of unleavened bread, in sincerity and in truthfulness. Uh, that's, That's the point I wanted to make there. So let's go back and see if we can get through Isaiah 56 then with that background. 
Thus says the Eternal, Keep you judgment and do justice. For my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. So he lays out in these chapters we've just gone through the procedure he's going to use and what his promises are and what we have to do to shake Babylon off and begin to come out of Babylon and shake their effect off our necks. The Passover and what it means to us and then the blessings that will ensue thereafter in chapters 54 and 55. So then he comes back to our attitudes, our approach, and that fits very well with the days of unleavened bread. That we keep good judgment, use good judgment. You know, it's real easy for us to maybe see or think we see a sin or a problem in someone else. And uh, sometimes it's hard for us to remember that we're not supposed to be judgmental or condemnative too, isn't it? So we attribute motives to people a lot of times, and what we think might be there may not be there whatsoever. You know, have you ever had somebody say something to you and said, well, that's not what I was thinking at all. But they thought by the look on your face or how you grimaced or because your left knee buckled and you frowned uh, that you were thinking something that you weren't thinking at all. We do that all the time, don't we? We misread each other. We misjudge each other. We, we, we don't read each other's reactions correctly always. So it's easy for us to attribute motives. Well, I know what that person was thinking. Oh, do you? You sure? But we're certainly willing to give our opinion to someone else about it, aren't we? Be careful with judgment and do justice. For my salvation is near to come. Now, he's, he's saying we need to be very, very careful in our judgments because there's not much time left. My salvation is near to come. Well, what is that based on? That's based on the chapters we just went through of these events. So he says, when you see some of these events begin to come to pass, realize that my salvation is near and my righteousness to be revealed. So the call for the arm of the Lord to wake up and put on strength and do the works of old is drawing near when that wake-up call is given. And we know from Luke 21 and Matthew 24 that we're to watch and see the signs when the trees begin to put on the leaves that these things are getting near. The famine, the pestilence, the earthquakes, all the things that Matthew 24 talks about, we see increasing about us daily. Zephaniah says just before Haggai that there's going to be a tremendous crash financially in the country. And chapter 2 says... Gather yourselves before it happens, just as he says, when these things begin to happen, uh, shake the yoke of Babylon off, don't leave the dog behind, but and you know, do it in great haste, but get yourself out of there and gather yourselves together. That's the context we've been reading. Well, that fits Zephaniah. Well, where does Zephaniah come? Just before Haggai, where it talks about the two witnesses in the remnant church getting together to build the temple. So, when we see these things beginning to come to pass, 
And do we see a financial crash coming? It's becoming obvious even to the mainstream media now. And I'm seeing articles and, and you hear a talking head now and then talking about how dire things are becoming. Standard & Poor's just lowered the rating of U.S. credit uh, default, uh, not greatly, but a fraction down from what it was. Well, that set off all kinds of things in the business and financial world because they're beginning to admit that there is a danger of default of our debt, that we're going to go bankrupt by Standard & Poor's. So there are a lot of people who base uh, financial decisions on such things. And foreign countries start to begin, become alarmed when they realize this thing's slipping. And they already knew it. Standard & Poor's is always, you know, they're, they're going to hold it up there as long as they can. And then when they drop it, everybody says, uh-oh. So this thing is coming, and it's coming fairly soon. So we see the events of Zephaniah and Haggai, or the things just forerunning Haggai, happening in Zephaniah. And those things are undeniably right in our face right now. So we know it can't be far away. So we take Isaiah with the same story, and we know it can't be far away. So when we see these things beginning to happen, know that his salvation is near to come and his righteousness to be revealed. You know, this has been here for thousands of years. So at what point do you say, oh, wonder what time he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the time when these things begin to come to pass is what he's talking about. And not our righteousness, but his righteousness. Remember what it said in the last verse of chapter 54, it will not be your righteousness, but mine. His righteousness to be revealed. Uh, let's, I want to flip back to chapter 46 just a moment. Uh, verse 8, Drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Eternal, have created it. So we see the theme here being rehearsed over and over as you go through this context. So then he gives us some instruction. Blessed is the man that does this, and the Son of Man that lays hold on it. Grab hold. Don't just read it, pass over it, but... Consider it in sincerity and truth, because we're talking here about Passover time. Chapter 53 was just about everything Christ went through. 54 shows what God was, will do shortly after Passover, some year. I'm not predicting this year. I hope it is, but I don't know that. It'd be nice. I hope we don't have to go through another year of what we've gone through and worse. But we might. Uh, but, you know, we're surrendered to God and to His way, and His time, and everything that He is. So we have no right to get impatient with God. He has every right to be impatient with us. Uh, because He will perform always what He says. We're the ones who have trouble performing. So He gives us this warning. Blessed is the man that does this, and the Son of Man that lays hold on it, grabs it, that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it, keeps his hand from doing any evil. Uh, 
Why bring up the Sabbath in particular here? Well, A, it's a sign between him and his people, always has been. And B, uh, that is one thing that the beast, which is rising before us, is going to take away and is involved with the mark of the beast. So the Sabbath is going to become a very, very important issue and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So he brings up the Sabbath in particular, and then he lassos us all doing any evil of any kind. Neither let the son of the stranger that joined himself to the eternal speak, saying, The eternal has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Now, we went over this some time back. Remember chapter 39 where God told Hezekiah that his sons would become eunuchs in Babylon? And, and Hezekiah says, well, at least there will be peace in my time. And I, I see much evidence that that was speaking uh, in, in an end-time fulfillment of Herbert Armstrong. And shortly after his death, the two evil birds, uh, according to Zechariah 5, carried the church off and set it on its own base right back in Babylon. Uh, and who are we? We're Hezekiah's, or in this case, I think, Herbert Armstrong's in the type. Children, his sons. Well, aren't we pretty much eunuchs and powerless to do anything spiritually in the world today? We've talked about this. Look at the church, all the effort they put in, the millions they put into booklets and broadcasts and TV programs and everything. It's almost worthless. It's not producing more children. There's not any calling going on. And they'll crow if they do get one or two to come visit. And they usually show up for two or three weeks and say, this isn't for me, and they're gone. So we are essentially powerless to produce children in the church. The calling has essentially stopped. But he says, lay hold on the Sabbath, quit doing evil, and don't say, I'm a dry tree. Find the power. Go to God for power. See, we lost our power because we lost our closeness to God. And we went our own way and became Laodicean and lackadaisical and ho-hum about all these things. So God spewed us out and then says, you're like eunuchs. You can't produce children. But do we settle for that? And say, well, I guess I am a eunuch. <laughs> I can't do anything. No, he, tell, he gives us instruction then. Don't say, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Eternal to the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths. So this is talking about God's people, obedient to Him, keeping His Sabbaths, not just one, but all of them. The eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths. So it has to be converted people. And choose the things that please me. Now they are choosing the things, most of them, that please them. Well, we want to do a worldwide work. Okay, go for it. You're not accomplishing anything. Nothing is happening. Been at it now for 20 years. Well, maybe not quite that, since maybe 94, 96, somewhere in there when the biggest breakup came. But certainly long enough that if you're going to accomplish anything, something ought to be showing up as fruits by now. You know, the, the, the fruit cycle on a tree is about every year, not every 15 years. 
Choose the things that please me. And that's why we have to go to this book and search it carefully to find out what God is after right now. Not what might please us or what three verses we like, but what is the overall plan and purpose of God and what's He doing? What's He working out? Choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. His covenant is what? We'll read about it here a little bit. If We, we probably won't get there today, but uh, the, the covenant of putting a, His Spirit in us, His mind and His heart in, in essence. Even to them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. So those that keep His Sabbaths, don't do any evil, and please Him are going to be given a place in His kingdom ultimately. Better than sons and daughters. How can you be better than a son or a daughter? Well, how about a wife of your son? How about a king and a priest of God? I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Remember how he says he'll give us a new name in Revelation 2 and 3? Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the eternal to serve him and to love the name of the eternal to be his servants. So there will be some who come at the eleventh hour, right? Who say, hey, I want to be part of that. Everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant, the new covenant, uh, the new testament of Christ and of his sacrifice and of his instructions, which really just expand and echo the Old Testament. Now, here's the promise that goes with this. They'll take hold of my covenant, my laws, and not do evil and do justice and good judgment. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain. His holy mountain in Scripture is the hill of Jerusalem or the Mount of Jerusalem or Mount Zion. Those are both used in terms of the holy mountain of God. Better know where it is too, huh? And make them joyful in my house of prayer. So his holy mountain and in his house of prayer. That would be the church. Could even be a physical temple from that, st from that standpoint. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar. Now, is that uh, rhetorical? Is that uh, a reference to our prayers as sacrifices, our offerings and so on as sacrifices? Or is he talking in terms of Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48, where it appears there will be animal sacrifices done, and it appears even in this age as an example to the world of what the world tomorrow is going to contain for them because Isaiah 65, 66 makes it very clear that in the millennium animal sacrifices will be done. Why? You have Christ here. Well, on some rudimentary level, people are going to have to come to understand and those sacrifices will be a teaching method. You see, when he brought them out of Egypt... He did not speak of them in terms of any kind of animal sacrifices 
or burnt offerings or any of those things. He says that in Jeremiah 7.22. I didn't speak to your forefathers or your fathers of those things. He had left it to them to understand the spiritual, to have faith and trust in Him, to follow the cloud, not do their own thing, not go into idolatry and back to the gods of the Egyptians and so on and so forth. But they didn't have enough understanding, enough control, enough worship and reverence for God that they were willing to do that. And they continually went back the other direction. So he said, oh, oy vey, what am I going to do? Well, he had a plan in mind, but I mean, you'd, you'd look at it from that standpoint. What am I going to do with these people? All right, I'm going to adopt a sacrificial system. I'm going to set up priests and Levites. I'm going to make them sacrifice animals. And when they sin, it's a dove, it's a lamb, it's a goat. Oh, you mean if I sin, it costs me? Ooh. And then they begin maybe to make a little bit of connection here. If, if, I, if I don't sin, maybe I will still have a flock next year. Duh, but how thick are people? And I think that he is going to do the very same thing in the millennium because he, said, he makes it very clear that there will be animal sacrifices at that time. Uh, will it be because people have been so far from God and not understanding any kind of relationship that he has to start them out on the most rudimentary understanding They'll be like the people coming out of Egypt. They won't understand about God. They won't get spiritual things. So those will be a teaching thing to get them moving in that direction. That there is a cost, death, of their animals for sin. And eventually they might can understand true spiritual things. And I, it, it, it appears to me more and more that it may be that he will set that up even before then, not because we need it. We have Christ as a sacrifice. We don't need the blood of bulls and goats. And he said it never has pleased him. What does the, death of the, blood, the blood and the death of bulls and goats do for God? Nothing. It was for people who couldn't understand spiritual things and needed that to help teach them some things. So if he does it here in the end time, it will only be as a small forerunner of what will be a worldwide practice at the beginning of the millennium. I don't know that it will go all the way through the millennium. It may be that over a period of a few years or 50 years or whatever it takes, uh, people begin to get the spiritual message and then those things could be dropped because there's Christ and the Father with them and all these teachers among them but it will be used as a teaching tool initially. So he may be showing the world through his remnant people at the end, you know, this is the way things will be when the kingdom of God is set up. So I see it as a useful thing, not as a spiritual need for spiritually uh, alert people, see. But he does use it here as an example in, in verse 7. So whether that carries through or not, we shall see. Uh, Their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. So everyone is going to be invited, even before the millennium, and they won't come, 
at the millennium, they will be all invited. Uh, and most, it appears, will come. But, as he says in Zechariah 14, if the Egyptian doesn't, upon him will come no rain. So God is going to use physical things to get people to understand that there's a God over there that needs to be paid attention to. That's the whole point. The eternal God which gathers the outcasts of Israel says, so see, he's still, he's, he's still here talking in this context about the outcasts of the church being gathered together. And of course, there's a bigger final fulfillment when he gathers the outcasts uh, after World War III and the seven last plagues in the millennium. So there's a, there's a smaller fulfillment and a larger fulfillment, as in all things in the prophecies, or almost all things. Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered. So when he starts this process of gathering, uh, he starts very small, and then he's going to add others, just as he starts small with the church, and then he's going to add the whole world to it, ultimately. So God works in these patterns over and over. So he says, verse 9, All you beasts of the field come to devour. Yes, all you beasts in the forest. He says, this isn't going to happen overnight. There are going to be some dry trees out there, which we've all been. We've all been kind of powerless eunuchs. Have we not? Uh, unable to do much. And to those, he says, don't say I'm a dry tree. Obey me, serve me, lay hold on my covenant, and then I'm going to use you. I'll bring you forward. But he said, a lot of people aren't going to do it, so beasts of the field, come on, sharpen your teeth, uh, come get ready to devour, because trouble is coming. Now, if this was millennial, he wouldn't be inviting the beasts of the field to come eat people, would he? No, that's a peaceful time when the lion and the lamb and the bear and the snake and everybody's tame. But here is an invitation. So this has got to be premillennial. Come on, sharpen your teeth up, you know, uh, get your, sharpen your toenails, your claws, uh, let's get ready to eat. His watchmen are blind, they're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. And that's what the ministry had become and for the most part really, unfortunately, still is. How many are crying aloud and sparing not? Very, very few and far between. Now how does that help people? You know, you get a watchman on the tower and you see trouble coming and you, oh well. They're ignorant. Dumb dogs. Won't bark, can't bark. Still asleep. Yes, they're greedy dogs which can never have enough. You ever seen how a dog eats? It's hard to give him enough. You just keep wolfing it down. And the shepherds or the, the ministry, the watchmen, are likened to that here. You could tie in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, Malachi 1 and 2 very easily with this. Not only they're greedy, lazy, 
non-barking dogs, but then he uses the analogy of the shepherd as well. Shepherds that cannot understand. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what's happening in the church. They don't know what's about to happen in prophecy. They don't get it. They don't believe in a conspiracy or a confederacy yet, a lot of them. They still think, well, just the Germans are going to come over here one someday. They don't know what's going on. The ten nations is ten divisions of the whole earth. That's a world ruling empire that's coming up. I mean, this, we could go on and on about this. They all look to their own way. Everyone for his gain from his area or his quarter. Come you, say they, I will fetch wine and we will fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. Many of them are saying, well, this thing's still quite a way off. Uh, you know, it, I've heard one of the, the biggest one, in fact, say, uh, and I don't know who said it, so it might not have been the, the top uh, officials, but, oh, we may have two or three hundred years left, you know. Boy. I don't. <laughs> I don't know about you, but uh, the way things are in this world, give me a break. There's not much time left. But they're saying, well, things are just going on. Keep paying, praying, staying, and obeying us. Uh, not God so much. But that's kind of the message. As long as you're here, everything will be okay, honey. Uh, we, we've got your ticket here, and if you just keep paying and praying, we'll give you a ticket. Just before we get on the plane, we're going to go over to Petra, and you get to live in a, in a cave over there that's full of dung. <laughs> Been there, seen that. <laughs> I don't want to go there and do that. They just don't understand, it says. And they're, they're so busy wanting as it was in the past, fancy homes with swimming pools and Lexuses and whatever else, uh, and three or $400 tailor-made suits and expense accounts and blah, 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 ad nauseum. You know how things were, and it hasn't changed. It's too bad. Once removed, but still the same. Tomorrow shall be as this day but much more abundant. The work's going to grow and we're going to be more productive and we're going to have lots of people coming. we just got to do this thing. We've got this crisis now. Send more money so we can print more booklets and get on more TV stations and everything's going to be good and the work's going to grow. And we're going to do a worldwide work. You betcha. Not happening. So this is very timely for right now. Uh, God tells us, don't be dead, don't be dried up, go to God, lay hold on Him, do good, and I will use you then, uh, as we'll get to, to do some things for Him. So we have opportunity ahead of us, and I think that this is timely for Days of Unleavened Bread, to see what God instructs us to do, to, to get the sin out and sincerity and truth, and lay hold on His covenant and on His laws and His ways, and do no evil. Good message for tonight. So, let's just leave it at that. Thank you for being here, and we'll see you tomorrow night, God willing.